This is Line Dance Podcast. I'm Christopher Gonzalez. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Line Dance Podcast. Megan and I are in the car on the way to Hopmunk Tavern, Nevada for the first time in a while. Quite a while, because uh, we have a Thursday when it is not running head-to-head against... Twin Oaks Roadhouse in Pengrove. Finally. Finally. So we'll get to see the old dance floor again. Apparently it's been really busy in the last couple months. They had that uh, article come out in the Marine Independent Journal and it brought out all sorts of folks, new line dancers to the scene. Which is very exciting. Absolutely. Since we had a, a half hour drive or so, we figured we'd pull up one of these shorter articles that we found recently following the the um, unfortunate events overseas this week we wanted to find articles that discuss bringing people together this article is titled six habits of highly empathic people by Roman Kurzarnik it starts out we can cultivate empathy throughout our lives says Roman and use it as a radical force for a social transformation. If you think you're hearing the word empathy everywhere, you're right. It's now on the lips of scientists and business leaders, education experts and political activists. But there is a vital question that few people ask. How can I expand my own empathic potential? Empathy is not just a way to extend the boundaries of your moral universe. According to new research, it's a habit we can cultivate to improve the quality of our own lives. But what is empathy? It's the ability to step into the shoes of another person, aiming to understand their feelings and perspectives, and to use that understanding to guide our actions. That makes it different from kindness or pity. And don't confuse it with the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, as George Bernard Shaw pointed out. Do not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They might have different tastes. <laughs> empathy is about discovering those tastes. The big buzz about empathy stems from a revolutionary shift in the science of how we understand human nature. The old view that we are essentially self-interested creatures is being nudged firmly to one side by evidence that we are also homo empathicus, wired for empathy, social cooperation, and mutual aid. Over the last decade, neuroscientists have identified a 10-section empathy circuit in our brains, which, if damaged, can curtail our ability to understand what other people are feeling. Evolutionary biologists like Franz de Waal have shown that we are social animals who have naturally evolved to care for each other just like our primate cousins. And psychologists have revealed that we are primed for empathy by strong attachment relationships in the first two years of life. But empathy doesn't stop developing in childhood. We can nurture its growth throughout our lives, and we can use it as a radical force for social transformation. Research in sociology, psychology, history, and my own studies of empathic personalities over the past 10 years, reveals how we can make empathy an attitude and a part of our daily lives, and thus improve the lives of everyone around us. Here are the six habits of highly empathic people. Habit one, cultivate curiosity about strangers. Highly empathic people, HEPs, have an insatiable curiosity about strangers. 
they will talk to the person sitting next to them on the bus, having retained that natural inquisitiveness we all had as children, but which society is so good at beating out of us. They find other people more interesting than themselves, but are not out to interrogate them, respecting the advice of the oral historian Studs Terkel. Don't be an examiner. Be the interested inquirer. Curiosity expands our empathy when we talk to people outside our usual social circle, encountering lives and worldviews very different from our own. Curiosity is good for us, too. Happiness guru Martin Seligman identifies it as a key character strength that can enhance life satisfaction, and it is a useful cure for the chronic loneliness afflicting around one in three Americans. Cultivating curiosity requires more than having a brief chat about the weather. Crucially, it tries to understand the world inside the head of the other person. We are confronted by strangers every day, like the heavily tattooed woman who delivers your mail, or the new employee who always eats his lunch alone. Set yourself the challenge of having a conversation with one stranger every week. All it requires is courage. That's interesting that we just had a podcast episode recorded earlier today entitled 11 Ways to Turn Strangers into Friends. So again, this habit was cultivate curiosity about strangers. So, one of my favorite things to do, which I actually used to get teased for, made fun of, or something to that effect, is talk to random people in line. It could be in line getting coffee. It could be in line at Disneyland. It, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Um, and I'll just randomly ask them questions. Um, about whatever thing is going on. And one, I find that it's pretty easy to ask someone how their day is going or if you're in line for a coffee, like, you know, what kind of coffee are they ordering or would they recommend something from this place? Or, I mean, Disneyland's really easy because you're all standing in the same ride for about 45 minutes to like three hours. So you really can have a pretty good, fun conversation with people. Um, and it's a great way to pass the time. I know one of the last times I was in Disneyland specifically, and we were waiting forever for the Cars Radiator Springs ride, uh, we were playing the um, heads up game, and people around us just started chiming in. Hmm. And so, like, before we knew it, there was like eight different groups chiming into this game and because the lines typically zigzag like one minute you'll be next to somebody and then the line will move so then you'll be next to a bunch of different people so like it just kind of expanded into this like little cluster of people and we were all playing the same game we were all talking and we're laughing um I remember sitting down for one of the parades like two hours early because that's what you gotta do you want a good spot um and I was I had a pu- one of the 3D crystal puzzles, and the little girl next to me kept watching me. So I asked her if she wanted to help. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, she was like, yeah, of course. So, you know, like, we're sitting there, we're doing this puzzle together, and um, my friend's with me as well, and she's helping me, and we're having this great conversation with this family next to us, and just getting to know people. Um, I've met people from Sonoma County in Disneyland, 
actually. It was very interesting. So it's a great way just to randomly strike up a conversation with someone. And the more you get to know the people around you, whether it's immediately around you and you're never going to see them again or someone who you're going to see more frequently, it's a great great way to start seeing the world as a, this could be a so-and-so for me. This could be a new friend. This could be like my friend that I met doing this. This could be like that woman that told me about this story and so on and so forth. And you start seeing people as people and not just nuisance. Mm-hmm. Not just, a, you know, another car, another person, another body that's just using up space. You start being able to actually attach a life and a value to them because of the fact that you're now becoming more invested in random strangers. How does the heads-up game work? I don't think I've ever heard of that. Um, It's the one on... Well, we played it on the phone, but what happens is it'll give you a word or an animal, and it's kind of like taboo. You have to say everything Uh, but the word, and the person who has it up on their head is supposed to guess what the word is. Okay. So, and there's a timer, and... There's a, uh, a skip option and whatnot. Right. Yeah, seeing people that you haven't met before and not knowing what they're going to become is sort of almost like seeing the future. Like, when you think about people who've come in and out of your life, like, they have a whole timeline associated with them. Like, a start when you met and then an end when it was the last time you saw them. When you're about to speak to somebody, it's sort of like watching the prequel. Like, this was your life before you met that person. And then all of a sudden you talk to them and the movie starts. I can see that. Yeah. And uh, with playing RPGs, role-playing games, uh, with NPCs, non-playing... Um, Non-playable characters. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't know who is going to start you on a side quest. So you talk to everyone and maybe somebody will have some interesting thing to contribute. It might just be one little line of dialogue, but it might be a whole unfolding evening of shenanigans where, like, they're your companion for this next bar crawl in a new city. And I'm so that person that has to talk to everybody in a video game. Yep, same here. You never know what you're going to miss. Like, I don't want (laughs) to to miss a really cool thing that could have gotten me a nice shield or piece of armor when all I had to do was say hi. Exactly. Habit two, challenge prejudices and discover commonalities. We all have assumptions about others and use collective labels, e.g. Muslim fundamentalist, welfare mom, that prevent us from appreciating their individuality. HEPs challenge their own preconceptions and prejudices by searching for what they share with people rather than what divides them. An episode from the history of U.S. race relations illustrates how this can happen. Claiborne Paul Ellis was born into a poor white family in Durham, North Carolina in, 1920, in 1927. Finding it hard to make ends meet working in a garage and believing Amer- African Americans were the cause of all his troubles, he followed his father's footsteps and joined the Ku Klux Klan, eventually rising to the top position of exalted cyclops of his local KKK branch. In 1971, he was invited, as a prominent local citizen, to a 10-day community meeting to tackle racial tensions in schools and was chosen to head a steering committee with Anne Atwater, a black activist he despised. But working with her exploded his prejudices about African Americans. 
He saw that she shared the same problems of poverty as his own. I was beginning to look at a black person, shake hands with him, and see him as a human being, he recalled of his experience on the committee. It was almost like being born again. On the final night of the meeting, he stood in front of a thousand people and tore up his clan membership card. Ellis later became a labor organizer for a union whose membership was 70% African American. He and Anne remained friends for the rest of their lives. There may be no better example of the power of empathy to overcome hatred and change our minds. Now in the line dance community, things tend to be on the lighter side, but I do see when there can be stylistic conflicts. Uh, if there is a group that you think isn't real line dancing, they're not, they're not teaching real line dancing, what I do is the only one true line dancing, then it starts sounding a lot like religious conflicts. Like, why would anyone else do that when, uh, when here we are and we're keeping it country with hats and buckles or whatever? And then somebody else is like, no, that's not, that's not real line dance. Like, that's old line dance. This is real line dance because this has all the latest music and this is what people are actually doing. And then somebody else says, no, you're both wrong. Like, line dance is just an, a, a side group of the dance uh, category. So we're dressed in our dance gear. We have our stretch pants and you know, tank tops and Zumba stuff and whatever. And we're doing actual dance dance. Like, if you want to get technical, we're the real dancers here. You guys are dressed in street clothes. How can you dance in street clothes? So everybody could have a completely different idea of what should be taught to everyone. And really, nothing really needs to fit everyone. You can just be different and still like each other and see what you have in common. Absolutely. Um, one of the first things that came to mind is line dancers versus partner dancers, mm. i.e. two-steppers and West Coast Swing yeah. and that kind of fun stuff, sharing the same floor. Um, I know that there can be some animosity to, towards one another and the way I have trained myself to see it is as long as we are respectful of one another's space, there's room for everyone on the dance floor. Yes. And the way I see it is they're out there dancing, they're out there expressing themselves, they're out there enjoying the, move, the movement and the music and the moment and being a part of something more than just themselves. And I'm out there doing the exact same thing. So I tend to look at that like, well, I want my space on the dance floor just as much as they want their space. So if I afford them the respect and give them space, I've never had it go the opposite, then we can both share the floor. Like they, they will respond and be cautious and courteous just as much as I am. All right. We have one more before I think it would be a good time to, to take a break in our list of six items as we are taking the exit for our destination this evening. So here's habit number three of six. Try another person's life. So you think ice climbing and hang gliding are extreme sports? Then you need to try experiential empathy, the most challenging and potentially rewarding of them all. HEPs expand their empathy by gaining direct experience of other people's lives. 
putting into practice the Native American proverb, walk a mile in another man's moccasins before you criticize him. George Orwell is an inspiring model. After several years as a colonial police officer in British Burma in the 1920s, Orwell returned to Britain determined to discover what life was like for those living on the social margins. I wanted to submerge myself, to get right down among the oppressed, he wrote. So he dressed up as a tramp with shabby shoes and coat and lived on the streets of East London with beggars and vagabonds. The result, recorded in his book Down and Out in Paris and London, was a radical change in his beliefs, priorities, and relationships. He not only realized that homeless people are not, quote, drunken scoundrels, Orwell developed new friendships, shifted his views on inequality, and gathered some superb literary material. It was the greatest travel experience of his life. He realized that empathy doesn't just make you good, it's good for you too. We can each conduct our own experiments. If you are religiously observant, try a, quote, God swap, attending the services of faiths different from your own, including a meeting of humanists. Or if you're an atheist, try attending different churches. Spend your next vacation living and volunteering in a village in a developing country. Take the path favored by philosopher John Dewey, who said, all genuine education comes about through experience. I would definitely love to try soul line dancing. It's so different of its own complete scene. Like they have they have choreographers and instructors and events, big events, cruises that we never hear about in the circuit that we're accustomed to. But they are just as legitimate as a different field of line dance. So that would be something I would want to consider. Um, oh, go ahead. I was like, one of the few things I've learned is just simply by trying the West Coast swing or the nightclub two-step yep. or a waltz rhythm has expanded my own idea of what line dancing is. Mm-hmm. And being open to that and actually willing to give it a try has made all the difference in my own dancing experiences and my friendships just as much as giving you know the country original you know what I was originally exposed to vibe along with you know like the hip hop and the arm movements like I mean when I started you didn't use your arms (laughs) yeah you clapped and that was about it yeah that was like the extent of it and so like to get into even just getting comfortable and being open minded and trying you know, to use your arms has certainly given me the opportunity to expand and grow. Mm. Um, so to try a completely new style, the way soul line dancing is, like, that would be really cool too. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have arrived at the parking lot in front of Hot Monk Tavern in Nevado, California. We are going to disembark. Enjoy a night of dancing, and then we will resume the end of this list uh, later tonight. Some of us will enjoy the dancing. Some of us will enjoy the dancing. I'll be enjoying the music. You'll enjoy the healing your calf. That'll, That'll be very fun. All right, we'll talk to you in a few minutes. We are back on Line Dance Podcast in our bonus episode about the six habits of highly empathic people. Uh, We left off halfway through, we finished the first three, and we are now on habit four. Listen hard and open up. There are two traits required for being an empathic conversationalist. One is to master the art of radical listening. 
What is essential, says Marshall Rosenberg, psychologist and founder of Nonviolent Communication, NVC, is our ability to be present to what's really going on within, to the unique feelings and needs a person is experiencing in that very moment. HEPs, which I will remind our listener stands for Highly Empathic Persons, listen hard to others and do all they can to grasp their emotional state and needs, whether it is a friend who has just been diagnosed with cancer or a spouse who is as upset at them for working late yet again. But listening is never enough. The second trait is to make ourselves vulnerable. Removing our masks and revealing our feelings to someone is vital for creating a strong, empathic bond. Empathy is a two-way street that, at its best, is built upon mutual understanding, an exchange of our most important beliefs and experiences. Organizations such as the Israeli-Palestinian Parent Circle put it all into practice by bringing together bereaved families from both sides of the conflict to meet, listen, and talk. Sharing stories about how their loved ones died enables families to realize that they share the same pain and the same blood, despite being on opposite sides of a political fence, and has helped to create one of the world's most powerful grassroots peace-building movements. This could, in the line dance world, perhaps um, be expressed between a teacher who is having a tough time teaching a student and a student who is having a tough time learning from the teacher. Because they might each think, well, I'm right. The way that I'm teaching is right. This is the way I've seen everyone else teach, and I should just do it this way because then I know I'm doing it right. If they're not learning, well, then there's something wrong with them. They could be that way if they felt like acting like that as a teacher. The students similarly could be like, well, it's their job to teach me. Um, I I am here. I paid good money. Um, and if they're going faster than I can handle, then are they even doing their job? Why did I even bother coming here? I could have watched a video on YouTube and paused it any time I wanted. They're not teaching properly, and they need to listen to what I need. Um, that, to some extent, is true. Also, if they are having side conversations and perhaps drinking heavily, then maybe they are not being honest with themselves about all that they could be doing to make it easier for the teacher to teach. The teacher could pay attention to their own students and see that um, some students are falling behind uh, what they would expect to, to have um, cleared with everybody at a certain point in their lesson. If they don't communicate and if they don't listen to each other's feelings about what they are expecting and what they need uh, to make each of their roles happen more smoothly, then they will just have a bad time overall. So that's one place where you can see the, the need to listen, whether with words or with um, just kind of observation. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, the listening part is relatively pretty easy. Mm. Um, and the few times in which I found myself struggle or whatever, I noticed that I've actually told myself, okay, they're talking. Listen, don't say anything. I don't care if it's relevant or not. Don't say anything until they have stopped talking. And by taking that step of like 
essentially giving myself an order not to say anything, I'm able to really focus on what they're saying and what their body movement is and their facial expressions. And it really allows me to absorb what they're trying to say. And I feel like I get a whole lot more from them just by simply doing that to myself. The opening up part, that's a whole different ball game for me. Mm. That's a tough one um, to put more into practice. It's, it's interesting. Um, I know I've, I've spoken with my sister about it. And to a certain extent, I wear my heart on my sleeve. What you see is what you get in the scent of that, like, I'm here, I'll be there for you, I'm, I will do whatever I can, you have value to me, you matter to me, but the deep, dark, nitty-gritty stuff, well, that is actually behind a brick wall, behind a cement wall, behind a locked box, behind, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's a very interesting, almost, like, hypocritical situation in which... Although I wear my heart on my sleeve, it's also very much under lock and key. Um, So the opening up part is a little bit trickier. However, what I have learned is being in the line dance community, I've gotten more comfortable opening up with people. It's still a long process, but because everyone in our community is so welcoming and I don't feel judged by them, I'm able to just ever so slightly show a little bit more of myself to people and you know try and be there more for people um in a full sense capacity as opposed to just yeah I'm here and I'll show you that I'm here but you don't ever get to know me Mm -hmm. um which I've learned that can really put strain on a friendship If people feel like they don't ever actually get to know you and they don't know what's going on with you, Mm -hmm. um, other than surface stuff, they can get very frustrated and almost, I've, I've had one friend internalize it and be like, there's obviously something wrong with her because I can't open up to her. Mm. It's like, no, no, you're fine. It's me. Promise. Mm. It's totally me. It has nothing to do with you. So, with the wonderful community that we have, I am actually able to show more of myself with people, and I think some of that has to do with with the same fact that I'm taking that step to make sure I'm listening to people, hmm. to like really get a sense of who they are and what they're going through, and potentially seeing their side of things. Um, that I may never even, it never occurred to me to see it that way before. Um, whether I agree with it is a whole different story, but you know, for whatever reason, like being able to really focus on what they're saying and what they're expressing allows me to get a better idea of them. And then in turn, I feel slightly invested. So then I want to go and, you know, include them somehow in my life since they've just opened up to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, like I said, I think our, our community does a great job of that. So hmm. wouldn't know how to like really specifically give an example other than that. Two that, um, that popped to mind are 
people who seem like they're in positions of like needing to show that they have it all together, like event managers and DJs, if they're interacting with, let's say, the staff, for the event managers it might be the staff, or for DJs it might be um, dancers, it would be easy to not say anything and just like get resentful, like if you're a staff person, say, well, I have all these needs and they're not meeting them and I'm never going to go back to their own. Did you talk to them? Did you open up? Did you tell them this is how I feel I, um, I'm being received? Like, I don't feel welcome. I, I feel like um, you know, money is being misspent. Uh, I feel like we're, we're, we're deserving of so much more, things like that. Um, if you don't communicate those things, then you're probably not going to get what you think uh, you should be. And that that fear of wanting to open up and say, like, this is what we think we should be getting, um, that might not ever be broken through uh, when you're talking to an event manager who's, who has not opened up, who doesn't seem like they're a real person, who seems like they need to look like they know everything and they have it all figured out and they're going to they're going to do all this stuff on their own and um and i mean honestly they're prob- they are people too and they are probably trying their best um to make things run smoothly for everyone however if they don't open up and they don't show that they are trying and that they have worries and concerns and you know, uh, they they do appreciate the staff because you know this wouldn't work at all without them. Like if they didn't make uh, shows of vulnerability and flawedness, then the staff might think like, well, I can't talk to this person. I can't tell them what I need because they're going to think I'm weak and like they're gonna they're gonna just run me over um, because they don't care that much having that ability to open up on both ends is going to get everybody's needs met. Somebody has to maybe do it first, or maybe there has to be a mediator to make sure that that happens on both ends. Uh, But I can definitely see how it might be scary for a staff person to to try to ask for change if the person on the other end doesn't seem like they're a real person who's going to be receptive to it. Um. I would say with like DJs and, and dancers, if you have a conflict that you are personally experiencing where you think like, oh, well, the DJ's not playing any of my requests. They must hate me. They must really not want me to be here. If you've... I mean, it, it's one thing to, to like think that you're communicating with your DJ by just saying, I want this dance. You might think, oh, well, that, they know that I want this dance. I've communicated with them. I did my end. Uh the DJ, I mean, of course, is a professional, so they they can't necessarily get into like all their hopes, fears, and aspirations from behind the booth. But if you do have a time set, you know, aside toward the end of the night where you are able to talk with them or say like, well, okay, so this is how I felt as a dancer. I saw that there were lots of other people, but I was curious why um, why did it never get around to you know this part of the request sheet. Like, why was it seemingly just my dances that didn't get played? You know, cause I, this is how I felt. I felt like I was single out. The DJ probably had no idea. Like I'm sure they were trying to do their best and then they can then say, okay, well let me clarify. This is, this is all the list of things that I was doing 
Um, I certainly did not intend to make you feel singled out. There are like hundreds of people here, literally hundreds of people here, and I did my best. I was really doing my best. I was scrambling and talking to this person and that person and the other, and then the event manager came down and they tried to talk to me while I was like lining up the next four songs. So I really did want you to have you know the best possible time. And you know what? Maybe we can even get in some of your requests first thing tomorrow for open dance. Like they will be able to clarify their end of how they experienced it, uh, and you will then not feel victimized and uh, singled out. But you'll never get to that point if you just keep the assumptions there and you're not both willing to share your side of how the night was. And the reason I'm saying that um, it's important for the DJ to say their end of like, you know, this is, these are all the things I was doing, because it's the same one-sided possible issue where the dancer can say, here's how I felt, and the DJ can just say, okay, hmm, I'll take that into consideration, thank you. Does the dancer feel listened to? Like, do they feel like the 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 DJ was just humoring them and trying to get rid of them? Because uh, the DJ might be thinking, "Well, I'm being a professional. I just need to, you know, keep it curt and you know, just do do the minimum so that they don't think that I am scrambling." No, it's okay to let them know you are scrambling. You do have difficult things that you need to do, and uh, they will understand. And then you can both communicate like human beings. <laughs> Anyway, that was a lot to say about Listen Hard and Open Up, but they're both relevant to the line dance world, so uh, now they're out there. Habit number five, inspire mass action and social change. We typically assume empathy happens at the level of individuals, but HEPs understand that empathy can also be a mass phenomenon that brings about fundamental social change. Just think of the movements against slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries on both sides of the Atlantic. As journalist Adam Hushold reminds us, the abolitionists placed their hope not in sacred texts, but human empathy, doing all they could to get people to understand the very real suffering on the plantations and slave ships. Equally, the international trade union movement grew out of empathy between industrial workers united by their shared exploitation. The overwhelming public response to the Asian tsunami of 2004 emerged from a sense of empathetic concern for the victims, whose plight was dramatically beamed into our homes on shaky video footage. Empathy will most likely flower on a collective scale if its seeds are planted in our children. That's why HEPs support efforts such as Canada's pioneering Roots of Empathy, the world's most effective empathy teaching program, which has benefited over half a million school kids. Its unique curriculum centers on an infant whose development children observe over time in order to learn emotional intelligence, and its results include significant declines in playground bullying and higher levels of academic achievement. Hmm. Mass phenomenon that brings about fundamental social change. Huh. I wonder how this would be used in I mean, I, to some extent, line dance itself is a mass phenomenon. And when you are all learning the same thing and the instructor tells you it's okay to feel like this part is going to be tricky, then you are given permission as one dancer among hundreds uh, to not get it the first time. You might think 
that you are struggling and everybody else is picking it up no problems, then you feel that disconnect between you and the rest of the dancers. But if the instructor can address the masses and acknowledge that this part might be tricky, so we're going to go over it a few times, now you can feel like, okay, so I'm not crazy. We're all going through this. It's okay for me to feel like this is difficult. Um, you then have that connection back with all the other people because you are sharing a struggle. And by sharing that uh, difficulty, you become closer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this, this one's a little bit trickier. It is. Um, <laughs> and it's okay to feel that this is trickier. <laughs> you. Um I've seen a lot of stuff when it comes to line dancers uh, that we certainly like to band together. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I've seen a lot of responses to some of the worldly situations that have come out where... a lot of my Facebook friends have mentioned something and how like their heart goes out or they're, you know, they hope that, you know, everybody returns safely or, you know, like their thoughts and prayers are with the families or, you know, like something to that extent. Um, just taking that moment to really just, you know, be like, you know, I, I really hope that this works out. I hope that everybody ends up being okay and, you know, like, I hope that the ones who haven't been okay, that, you know, like, the survivors, you know, they, they can heal. Um, I, I've seen some line dance stuff with, like, charity stuff. I know I've seen a lot of um, line dancers respond to their friends putting out raising money for charity situations. Uh, which is always reassuring for me to see. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big supporter of a lot of different charities. So it's nice to see other people banding together. Um, it makes me proud to be a part of the community, knowing that we have so many generous people out there. So... I guess in itself, like you were saying how like line dance, the community in itself is definitely its own mass. Um, and one of the few things I have seen as well is how many people have, and I use this loosely, the same story that line dance changed their life. Mm. Um, made them happier, healthier, and that in itself is social change. Mm-hmm. So um, whatever our walks of life up to this point have led us, like they've led us here, and now we have the chance to be a part of something bigger and better. Mm-hmm. I like what they mentioned about the kids also. Um, like you, you start planting the seeds with the kids, Um uh, We had one member of club mention how line dance is where she feels that she 
belongs. Like there is definitely a sense of belonging that line dance can give you when you're doing all the right things with the people around you. Like you feel confident. You feel like I know what I'm doing at least for five minutes of my life during the song, which during most songs is actually going to be like three minutes as we heard from Ruben Luna. Uh, for you, those of you who didn't understand that, that was Ruben Luna. Yes, Ruben Luna. I mentioned <laughs> that the average line dance song is about three minutes, so if yours is like six minutes, probably won't make it like on a mass scale being taught and accepted. I think even his dance, Sign of the Times, with Melissa Culbertson, uh, he recommends fading it out by a certain point yeah. on, on the, the step sheet. But anyhow, uh, if I had had that feeling of belonging when I was much younger... And it was based on something that I felt was mine. And like, I mean, I felt like I belonged with like the people in my classes cause I was in class with them. <laughs> but then what do you do? Like when you're not in class with them anymore the next year, like it's not something that you choose line dance, maybe partly just cause we're adults and we drive ourselves to class. Um, line dance is something we choose. It's something that we are more invested in based on more that more effort that we put into learning dances and going to functions and meeting people. If I had had that kind of opportunity to feel a deeper sense of belonging, more like that when I was younger, um, then I think some parts of my life would have gone more easily, I think, uh, just from comparing them with how things actually happened. <laughs> uh, and you know the kind of friendships that came and went, I think it would have been a lot stabler to to know that like I had allies around the world who are all going through like this new latest struggle of a dance with me, even if they weren't right next door. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that would have been really comforting to know as an awkward kid where you think you are the only person going through your stuff or maybe your best friend's going through it, but wait a second, six months later, they decide they're going to be friends with someone else. And now th that person isn't sharing your journey anymore Line dancers, from what I've seen, are less likely to drop you um, at that vulnerable time in your life. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I was blessed with being witness to was how much line dance can change a kid's perspective of themselves. Mm. Um, with me being able to teach the girls... Uh, you know, like I saw a few girls that were very, very timid and they wanted to open up and they didn't know how. For folks whose first episode this is, who are these girls? Um, well, unfortunately, they're scattered everywhere now and I miss them dearly. But um, I used to work for an at-risk uh, group home uh, for ages 14 to 18, both boys and girls. And I used to be able to teach the girls um, line dance for their PE credit. Uh, but going back to what I was saying, you know, they wanted to open up. They wanted something to do. They wanted something that they could be themselves. And in the few short weeks, I mean, it was a, probably a couple months total that I was teaching them. Yeah, you know, I saw some of them just completely blossom and like more outgoing and like really excited about line dancing because they enjoyed it because it was something that they could start and finish 
and understand and essentially do themselves. They didn't have to have, you know, um, somebody else to say partner dance with them or it wasn't a complicated math problem or they didn't have to remember some history fact that has no relevance to them in their current state because of where they are in their life. Um, you know, this was movement and it was music that they liked and enjoyed and they were able to escape for a minute what was going on with their their life and where they were and they were able to just let go and just have fun and be happy and for these kids you know like that is not a normal thing they're they're used to actually having to have a substitute chemical to release this kind of feeling so to be able to do it with music and dance completely sober you know like it was a great thing to be witness to and to be a part of and I miss it dearly but I know a lot of them even if they're not doing it right now I knew I know that they were able to start to see things as something they could accomplish because they've learned these dances they remembered them the next week they got to do them again the following week and they had fun and it was something they got to build on with their peers and with their mentors because even some of the mentors were in there dancing with us so it put everybody on the same playing field and everybody was able to enjoy themselves even just a little bit even the ones that resisted the most ended up loving it and you know like essentially thanking me um, and saying how much they're going to miss it. So. Yeah, man, having that opportunity to be vulnerable in a safe space, um, that that to, that can definitely um, accelerate the process of, like, personal growth. Yeah. Yeah, I know that that's... Uh, that's that's definitely a thing that I've found helpful with uh, with line dances. That like there is that period of time when you don't know the dance, you don't know what you're doing, mm-hmm. but you know what? Everybody else doesn't know it either because they're that's that's kind of one of those comforting things when uh, when they say how many people have done this dance before and like two or three people raise their hand and everyone else it's fresh. It's like good. I don't have to worry about like catching up or keeping up with these other people. Like I'm just wasting everyone's time because everyone knows it. And this whole class is about me and the four other people who've never learned it. So everyone would be having a great time doing open social dance, but no, I'm the only one who's causing this half hour to be, you know, help the slow kid. Um, When you're all struggling together and the whole room knows that you're not a master of this, but they still like you at the end of it and nobody's pointing at you and laughing. And then by the end of it, you do know it. And then you can like congratulate everybody else for also knowing it. Yeah. That brings you together in such a powerful way. Yeah. 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 It's hard to believe when somebody tells you, like if you're a beginner dancer and, and somebody tells you like, no one's going to point and laugh at you. Like everyone here is fine. Like, you might feel like all the eyes are on you and people are going to snicker and be like, look at that guy. He's a trying to dance. Ha ha ha. 
people feel like that's what's going to happen. And they want to take your word for it that everything will be okay. But when you're so scared that, that it could go horribly, you can't just believe them. Like you need, you need it to be real. You need it to be something you can experience that bad things will not happen. Yeah. Um, this is one of those places where if they at least get through a super duper beginner lesson and nothing bad happens, they can make more risks, take, Mm -hmm. take bigger chances. Um, and you know, that can apply to other parts of their life as well. Doing things they never thought would have been possible for themselves, like you know, quitting an addiction or something. Yeah. Oh, wow. There was even more to this one. that uh, Underneath the video, there was an additional paragraph for Inspire Mass Action and Social Change. It continues, Beyond education, the big challenge is figuring out how social networking technology can harness the power of empathy to create mass political action. Twitter may have gotten people onto the streets for Occupy Wall Street and the Arab Spring, but can it convince us to care deeply about the suffering of distant strangers, whether they are drought-stricken farmers in Africa or future generations who will bear the brunt of our carbon-junkie lifestyles? This will only happen if social networks learn to spread not just information, but empathic connection. And I think the line dancers lately actually have done that um, well with the the Move Radio especially, um, which people can check out at move-radio.com. Um, they have been helping raise support for the folks affected by the events in Manchester recently. And then, of course, the LDF, Line Dance Foundation, mm-hmm. they will occasionally have um, fundraisers. They have LDF Day. Mm-hmm. And all of this is spread through social media. Like, you don't get something in the mail that says, you know, please support this or that thing like all of this is made possible because we have things like facebook and whatnot yep habit six of six this is a list of six items this is the last one habit six was it let me guess this is uh number six it's the one that comes after five okay last one was five now we're on six okay but there is not a seven in case anyone thought there was a seven it is a list of six and only six habit six Develop an ambitious imagination. A final trait of HEPs is that they do far more than empathize with the usual suspects. We tend to believe empathy should be reserved for those living on the social margins or those who are suffering. This is necessary, but it is hardly enough. We also need to empathize with people whose beliefs we don't share or who may be, quote, enemies in some way. If you are a campaigner on global warming, for exa- for instance, it may be worth trying to step into the shoes of oil company executives, understanding their thinking and motivations. If you want to devise effective strategies to shift them towards developing renewable energy, a little of this instrumental empathy, sometimes known as impact anthropology, can go a long way. Empathizing with adversaries is also a route to social tolerance. That was Gandhi's thinking during the conflicts between Muslims and Hindus leading up to Indian independence in in 1947 when he declared, I am a Muslim, and a Hindu, and a Christian, and a Jew. Organizations too should be ambitious with their empathic thinking. Bill Drayton, the renowned, quote, father of social entrepreneurship, believes that in an era of rapid technological change, mastering empathy is the key business survival skill because it underpins successful teamwork and leadership. His influential Ashoka Foundation has launched the Start Empathy Initiative, 
which is taking its ideas to business leaders, politicians, and educators worldwide. The 20th century was the age of introspection, when self-help and therapy culture encouraged us to believe that the best way to understand who we are and how to live was to look inside ourselves. But it left us gazing at our own navels. The 21st century should become the age of empathy, when we discover not simply when we discover ourselves not simply through self-reflection, but by becoming interested in the lives of others. We need empathy to create a new kind of social a new kind of revolution, not an old-fashioned revolution built on new laws, institutions, or policies, but a radical revolution in human relationships. That can be tricky to really put yourself in somebody else's position and not just immediately say, well, if I were in their position, here's what I would do. But you wouldn't. Because if you're actually that other person, you would be operating under a completely different set of beliefs and life experiences. And you don't have the benefit of, maybe it's a benefit, maybe it's not, of who you are now standing in their shoes. You only have who you are as them. Yeah. Um, I don't remember who I was talking to, but somebody asked me how I would react if I was them in the situation. And I know at one point I had said, I would love to be able to say I would react this way. However, because I'm not in that situation, I have no clue how I would react Mm -hmm. if I'm being completely honest about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, but I can understand why maybe it was a hard situation for you or it was upsetting for you. I I can get that. I can make, I can understand like how the events leading up to this could have made you feel like such Mm -hmm. Um, because of the fact that I can think about the different options if I was in their shoes, how I would react, how I would feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that also comes from like when I try and talk to people and maybe say, um, express something I don't like or something even emotional on my side where it's like it's a vulnerability or it's something where like, you upset me or whatever the case may be, how would I best receive this information? Mm -hmm. If I was on the other end of this information and somebody was telling me that I had hurt their feelings or I had done this, how would I best be open-minded enough to see that they were hurt as opposed to feeling attacked? Mm -hmm. Um, Which has taken some practice and some time to really catch myself in doing is to think about it from the other side. How would, how would it affect me if the roles were reversed? Um, sometimes it's hard because your reactions are exactly that. They're reactions. Um, you're not planning them. You don't plan to be hurt by someone. You don't plan to fly off the handle because someone said something that triggered you. Um, It's not like, I want to be mad today, so I'm going to make sure somebody says something to me that upsets me. It's it's generally not how people function. Um, A lot of times they're caught off guard by these 
It's the process after the reaction in which you have the opportunity to be like, okay, before I make this worse, before I blow this out of proportion, how did I feel? Why did I feel that way? Um, What's going on? Okay, where could they have come from? What could they have meant? Is this just me and I'm making this personal? Did they really not mean anything by it? And then going to that individual privately. When I say privately, that means not on Facebook. That means not in group text message. That means (laughs) one-on-one and talking and being open and knowing that it's okay that you felt the way you did and it's okay that they felt the way they did. Um, You can be sorry for things you've said. They can be sorry for things they've said. How they've, they can be sorry for, um, misunderstanding something or not maybe being, uh, not maybe clarifying something, but as for the actual act of feeling away is it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from someone who has a hard time with emotions, <laughs> um, giving myself that permission that it's okay to be upset, but not dwelling on it is the tricky bit. Mm. Um, It's okay to feel the way you feel. And I keep telling myself that, and I'm hoping one of these days it really fully sinks in, as opposed to this partial toe-in-the-water situation I'm in now. But to remember that the other person is also human. Mm -hmm. And they have their own problems and they have their own triggers and they have their own things that upset them. And knowing that there's always two sides to something is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, To kind of ramble a little bit more. I remember uh, back, I'm going to say probably at least eight years, almost 10 years, um, I was having a conversation with my brother um, and he had said something very, because he's, he's much younger than me. He's 15 years younger than me. So he has a totally different generation and influences. Um, and at this point, I'm also, you know, like I'm in the quote-unquote adult world whereas he's still in you know school um and he had mentioned something about being and the way he worded it um I perceived it as him being very close-minded very judgmental and borderline hatred in his heart and that scared me and I told him I was like you have to be careful about how you word things because People interpret what they what you say by their own experiences. And what you just said came across as very racist. I know you and I know you're not racist. But what you just said and how you worded it is not okay. And like even saying that to him, he had such a reaction as if like I had just beat the living crap out of him. Um, and like, I could have, I said the worst thing in the world to him and he was so upset by this. And you know, like, so I had to reiterate, I was like, I know you're not racist, 
So it's okay. I'm just letting you know that, you know, like, if you're around somebody else, you really want to be aware of how you word something. Because the other thing is, from that person's point of view, they might be right. Just because you don't agree with what their upbringing was, what their culture is, what their belief system is, what their political view is, doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different. Now, yes, we're, we're all given the constructs of morals and ethics and right from wrong um, in the sense of like, generally speaking, most people believe mass murder, it's a bad thing. I am of those people that agree with that. But that doesn't mean that the reasons for someone doing something horrible like that um, can't be understood. And what I mean by that is if they were, say, on something, if someone beat them up and bullied them and they themselves were a victim and then they just reacted in a horrible way that caused such a tragedy, um, it doesn't lessen what they went through just because they are now the bad guy, quote unquote. Um, Now, again, with this said, I am definitely of belief that, you know, killing's bad. (laughs) Um, But I also think that there's different ways in which we could help people cope and deal with things. And, you know, like, there's a lot of stuff that's swept under the rug about injustice and inequality and bullying and stuff like that. And I like to try and at least understand what pain they have may have felt that they felt they had no other option than to cause this horrible, horrible event to happen. Um, it can be very hard and challenging to put yourself there. And it can be very scary if you can understand it. Because here you are telling yourself that the choices they made are wrong. But to be able to understand maybe what they were going through can be scary. Because you're like, okay, wait a minute. Now now I feel like I'm almost giving them the pass. And it's, that's not the case. What they did is wrong. In your opinion, whatever. That's great. But why they did it what was it that triggered them to make such a choice is something that you can put the effort into understanding and maybe prevent something like this in the future. Mm -hmm. To look at it with kind of a line dance flavor, uh, if you have an unpleasant experience, let's say with like a DJ or whatever, um, and they they freak out because of some small comment... um, and you think, well, that was unwarranted. Why did that happen? Like, you can be upset about it, most definitely. And you can have your judgment on it that that was a wrong thing to do. Uh, but if, as in this last habit, they, they say, uh, if you really imagine what led up to that choice being made, you might fight it the whole time. And you might say, like, oh, well... Um, they 
okay, they didn't get enough sleep, so at that particular second when they snapped, uh, they were experiencing like low blood sugar and exhaustion or whatever. So then you say, oh, but but they should have gotten more sleep. They're a professional. They, they, they know how to put their, their eyes closed and head on the pillow. And they say, okay, um, that the reason that specifically didn't happen the previous night was because they were talking with, you know, their their parent who is, I don't know, dying or something. And they say, okay, well, that's very sad and I feel for them. But uh, but this, but that, like, okay, every time you put another but on that, here's another specific thing that caused that to happen. And it will continue to be that way all the way to the point that they were born. Like, this is a way of, it's an extreme way of accepting really everything that happens. Because anytime you say this or that should be different, that's another place where something concrete did happen that caused it to be that way and only that way. Even when you think things are choices, all the choices that are made in a person's life are guided by all the factors leading to that choice. And those were also unavoidable. Like, it's only in the abstract that you think there are multiple ways a thing can go. And I've described this to you just on our own before, but I look at things that happen as though, like, look at the past. The way that that happened is on a line. It's on Uh a timeline, history. It only, between the years of, you know, 1970 and 1980, things happened one particular way. That is the only way that they happened, and there's no deviation from it. It's not like this, as far as we know, there's no alternative timeline. Mm -hmm. However, put yourself in the position of somebody in the year... 2027. They're now looking at the 10 years between 2017 and 2027. That is now history. That all falls on a timeline. It only happened that one possible way. Everything that we do from now until 2027 is going to fall on that timeline. It will all happen in the only way that it can for the next 10 years. And we might think the whole way along the the path that we have some choice but it's all going to end up on the line. Even you saying, ha, I faked out. I went left instead of right. Yeah, that's also on the line. (laughs) It's all on the line there. So whenever a thing happens and you think, well, things shouldn't have been like that. They should have gone this other way. That was all part of this timeline. And it, it, that made me think like, oh, well, I can just, I can dissolve myself, um, or, or dissolve. That's not the right word. Um, I can tell myself I don't have personal responsibility. I can make any choice and say, ha ha, well, it's all going to happen on the line, right? So I don't really have to do... And I can do a thing badly and then say, oh, I'm sorry, and then just do it again later, and I'll be sorry then too. But um, that... You know, now that you've heard this, all you people out there, you've heard this being described to you, and this may influence what you in the present feel is your choice. So maybe just like a chemical reaction, the way that you've lived your life up to this point and mix that with this idea that things are going to happen the way they're going to happen, maybe that will result in you choosing to do things differently than you currently expect. And you know what? Even if you don't, whatever, it all ends up on the line anyway. (laughs) So you just kind of accept, um, things as they happen and you accept the choices people make because everything that 
has gone from the Big Bang or whatever, beginning of the universe till now, led up to that happening. So you can get upset with it, and it's okay that you're upset because all your life experiences bubbled up to create a concoction of you are in the present moment and you feel upset. There was no way around that. Like, it was going to happen. You had the day that you had, you had the meal that you had, and now you feel upset. Oh, okay. They did this thing. You disagree with it. You feel very badly about that. Well, of course, of course you feel badly about that. Here's everything that led up to that. And here's why they did that, because of everything that led up to that. And it will continue this way for the rest of your life. You will never get off the line. So dance. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and that's how you put yourself in everybody's shoes, to get back to that, ha- that sixth habit. Um, you're all doing this. You're all, you're all on your own line. And when you are able to forgive yourself and accept yourself for the choices that you're making, knowing how inevitable all of those things were to happen that way, you can see other people living their lives, writing their timelines, and maybe you'll be able to accept, if that's where you are in your personal timeline, maybe you'll be at a place where you can accept that they're doing exactly what the universe is unfolding for them to do. True. Yeah. And absolutely. So just dance. (laughs) Because why not? I mean, it's inevitable. (laughs) You will find yourself on that dance floor. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And at this point, anything else that I say is just going to end up on the line. So um, I think this is a good place to to reach our inevitable conclusion for this episode. Now that it's after 1 a.m. and we've Rambled oh, it's after one forty-two a.m. Oh, it's almost two o'clock. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I had a lot of uh, beverage of um, like both soda and water uh, types tonight, so I think it would be a good time to to wrap ra- up. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you all for making it this far and listening to us talk about the six habits of highly empathic people. I hope that this will give you a greater understanding of the other passengers on on spaceship earth (laughs) and hopefully this will make all of our rides a little bit more enjoyable yeah hopefully and uh until until later we will (gasps) see See you on the dance floor